Pedro. What a seriously surreal few months. For all those listening, thank you for hanging in there with us as we developed our remote recording legs. It's strange, um, and it certainly doesn't look like we'll be back to the studio anytime soon, but it feels like the right time to get back into our regular podcast flow. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly missing the studio. It's kind of awesome that we've been able to pick up, you know, production, editing, and other skills along the way. And, you know, while it's it's going to be amazing when I get to sit across from you and actually be able to look into your eyes as we speak with middleists and career coaches, this has kind of been really nice. But to your point, I'm kind of ready to get back into it. Um, for anyone who's listened, new, old, uh, thank you and welcome back. And uh, let's get started. The Middleist, for those who don't know, is a podcast made for people like us in the middle of our careers. We try to find answers to the questions, how do I get ahead? What's my next step? And what am I doing with my life? I know we can't be the only ones who haven't developed our 15-year plan. Every episode, we seek out real Middleist stories and tangible takeaways from expert coaches to help ease the anxieties and move forward together. Now, Steph, I think today we have a pretty awesome guest. Are you ready? Am I ready? Am I ready, Pedro? I am like over the moon that you introduced me to this person. She's a tenured professor at Ursinus College, co-founder of the Hughes Company, a health and beauty community created to connect people of color and passionate research of race, class, gender, and the intersectionality of those ideas. Plus, she's writing a book. She is what I call a real overachiever. Jazz! I've been waiting to say this for a long time, but welcome to the Middleists. <laughs> so I've known you for about 18 years, um, you know, a spec in the, <laughs> in the history. <laughs> Not very long at all. <laughs> but before we get into the weeds, how are you feeling? You know... I'm feeling pretty good about my career right now, which is not something that I probably could have said six months ago. And that's because I recently earned tenure, um, which means that I was promoted from assistant professor to associate professor. And it means that I now cannot be fired. My contract is automatically renewed at this institution or whatever institution that I go to after this. Unless I do something very heinous, like break a law or, um, you know, do something wild that the faculty handbook explicitly says not to do. So, you know, I'm, I'm at that point where I can be a little bit more in charge of what happens next, which is nice. I love that. That's such like a strong POV to have right now, you know, in the time that we're living in and kind of the uncertainty that we've had and the way that you've explained, you know, how you have that professional power, if you will, sounds really enticing. Um, but I do know that it hasn't always been like that. So (laughs) (laughs) surprise. Um, so wondering if you could share with us a little bit about the dichotomy you've seen in the past between uh, past and present, um, as it relates to black women, uh, and their personal versus professional wants and desires. Yeah. And I should say, you know, I just got tenured in the first week of February. So literally three weeks before all of this stuff, 
with the coronavirus started going down. Um, and I know that there are a lot of people, especially Black women professors that are where I was six months ago right now and are not as lucky as I am. So um, there's a, a bit of luck that was involved in that. But um, one of the things that's been really hard for me throughout my career has been, you know, how do I balance what this career demands of me? And, you know, academia demands very specific things of you in terms of how much you publish, where you publish, what kinds of service you do for the college or university that you work at, um, and, you know, how good of a teacher are you? But then there's also me as a Black woman in these predominantly white institutions, um, you know, higher education just in general was created for white men, um, and so specifically not a place for me. And, um, and I know what it feels like as a Black woman student at these PWIs, like, you know, when, when we were in college together, Pedro, but I don't. I want to do everything that I can to make sure that there are um, Black women students who go to this school or any school that I work at that feel supported um, and don't feel as isolated and alone as I did when I was there. And those two things are not always compatible. And it's interesting because my, my dissertation was about Black women um, and their career trajectories in the Twin Cities, which is where I was doing my PhD and where I'm from. And, um, and I ended up with this thesis that there are two different kinds of, of women in this setting. One, which I called um, the cultural workhorse, which are the women who choose to stay very um, engaged in their communities, especially Black communities um, in Minneapolis and St. Paul to the detriment of their careers in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that in, a, in an ugly way. They are very happy with where they are and with the choices that, that they've made, but they overall made less money, um, had fewer direct reports, um, less significant titles than some of the other women that I interviewed as part of my research. And they acknowledged that the choices that they made to, um, to help support their communities diminished their careers in some ways. And then, you know, the other women um, that I call the, um, the assimilators, right, that they understood that there was this natural conflict between wanting to be deeply embedded and, and doing the work that was necessary in their communities and having very set, successful careers where they make a lot of money. And, um, and a lot of the women that I interviewed that found themselves in that group really talked about how difficult it was to make that decision and to you know perpetually make that decision um, over and over again. And, um, and it's, you know, sort of ironically, maybe something that I have had to deal with in my own career, maybe not ironically, maybe black women are, are sort of doomed to that kind of decision making throughout their career. The first time we spoke, you were telling me about your dissertation, and then you were telling me about 
your own personal career trajectory and your career goals and your life, I see how you are really trying to bring those two together and make it not such a dichotomy, though I can only imagine the challenge. You uh, you told us earlier about the commitment that you feel to your students and particularly your students of color. And I think, and, and I just want to be clear, PWI is primarily white institution? Yes, predominantly. Okay, cool. Predominantly white institution. I didn't know that. And so in my mind, I was like, figure this out. Um, (laughs) So, but you, but how, like, I see how important that must be, given that you were once in their shoes. And in a sense, you are in their shoes, just on the other side as a professor. But how has this abrupt shift to e-teaching impacted your ability to teach and deliver on on that commitment to your students? Yeah, you know, it's been really hard. Um, and I think the hope is we've been given the opportunity at our sinus to decide if we want to teach face-to-face or online in the fall, and I will be teaching online. Um, but I think that, and and so I want to do everything that I can in the time between now and the first week in September when the semester will start to make sure that I can close some of those equity gaps between students. But when we so abruptly went from being on campus to being online, I mean, you know, I live on campus and it was literally a ghost town, you know, students stuffed animals and pillows are still in their dorm room windows, but, but nobody was here. The inequality of higher education generally, but, you know, college and university campuses specifically, I think, really came to light for, some, for people in ways that they hadn't realized in the past. Um, you know, I have, stu- and, and mostly it was students of color who were dealing with these issues. So I have students who when they are on campus, have their own laptop, right? And uh, their own room with a roommate or two in which to get their work done, but live in, uh, you know, big cities in small apartments with large families that they suddenly found themselves all in the same close quarters for an extended period of time. Specifically, I had a student who, um, you know, she was having some difficulty meeting deadlines for assignments because she had two younger siblings who now were taking classes online who didn't own laptops. And, um, and you know, a, a middle schooler and an elementary school uh, sibling who needed to be able to do their Zoom classes on a computer as well. And so she was now sharing with, you know, two small children. And that's not something that our um, sort of typical students who are upper middle class white students have to deal with. You know, not only do they have laptops, but they have iPads and they have iPhones and their parents all have laptops and their siblings all have their own laptops and they all have their own bedroom spaces and and, um, study spaces that they can go to to take exams. But because you know, this is a PWI, like most colleges um, and universities are in the United States, when you get administrators and faculty in a room to make decisions about these things, they're thinking about the quote-unquote typical student. 
Um, and, you know, I really see my role as however hard it may be and however annoying I'm sure the administration finds me, especially right now <laughs> as they're trying to make all these decisions. And I'm constantly the one jumping into the conversation to say, oh, but wait, you know, um, who are we potentially exposing to the virus to have this, you know, piece of college life still happening? And, and that's because. I understand that the black and brown students that go here are not the typical students. And if I don't speak up for them and the handful of other black faculty on uh, this campus don't stick up for them, then nobody will be thinking about them and their needs. You know, the, the, um, the sort of racial ecology of this country means that black and brown kids have higher rates of asthma and more debilitating asthma. Asthma is a respiratory condition that is um, exacerbated by COVID-19. But that's not um, a statistic, you know, that the white deans and, um, and presidents were aware of. And so it was something that I had to interject and send, you know, articles for people to read to recognize that, you know, just because 18 to 22 year olds are less likely, you know, quote unquote, to be um, negatively impacted in the long term by this virus, you know, you're probably talking about white upper class kids that have a lifetime of preventative health care under their belt. And, you know, the kids that attend predominantly white institutions are generally recruited from poor urban areas where that's probably not the case. And those things need to be considered, however inconvenient it is to the overall plan. So, you know, it's been hard, it's been complicated, but I just keep reminding myself of who I am responsible to first. And for me, that is the minority students on this campus. I love that. I couldn't, like, help but thinking back to... POC weekend at Vassar, right? So mm. people of color weekend where we were invited um, to come and mm-hmm. tour and everything that ensued after, right? Because we were both student leaders on campus, but, you know, of uh, PWI, <laughs> mm-hmm. Will, um, and the kind of run-ins that we had in terms of voicing opinions or looking at, you know, inequities in relation to the needs of the POC, but also um, just issues in relation to, you know, food programs and points and things of that nature that a lot of students didn't have to consider. Um, And even when thinking about planning for reunion earlier this year and, you know, finding ourselves kind of raising a flag because of the, the connection we have to what's happening on the ground and saying, hey, we think this is going to be a bigger issue than you are considering it to be um, mm-hmm. and being met with some resistance. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think <laughs> it was insane. But thinking like that connectivity to always putting in that kind of work, right, which it seems like you've been doing for all of your life coming from Twin Cities. Um, and I've certainly, since I emigrated to the United States, knowingly or unknowingly. Um, and I think there's something to that about, you know, struggling to like make change and how to do that within organizations that are not necessarily prepared for that. So balancing, again, going back to your theme that, you know, activism with like 
professionalism and what the expectation is as well. Right. And, you know, for me, it's really about consistency to your point, Pedro. I hadn't really thought about it. But, yeah, we both have been um, big critics of, um, you know, PWIs specifically, but of organizations and the way they cater to or not the needs um, and desires of people of color. But, um, you know, what I've found is that if you just stay the course, I mean, that doesn't mean that things aren't going to be hard. That doesn't mean you're not going to be met with resistance, as we know, right? <laughs> but, um, but people come to expect it from you. You know, um, I actually sort of to this point, I have an article that just came out in um, um, Women's Studies Quarterly literally just a couple of weeks ago about um, inheriting educational capital. And in it, I'm, I'm critical of Vassar, you know, and I, and I talk about the ways that some of their messaging about family and um, and belonging are about a tip again. This idea of like what a typical student looks like, and I think often um, organizations just in general. And one of our um, fellow alumni, Victor Ray, who graduated in 2007, he wrote an article um, a few maybe in January called "Racialized Organizations," and it really breaks down the way that um, organizations. Even if nobody is specifically talking about race, thinking about race, end up racialized based on hiring practices, on division of resources. You know, when we were at Vassar, there were, what, two, three black faculty on campus total. Mm-hmm. Um, and so who was, who was going to be uh, an advocate for us? And so that experience does really inform what I do in my career right now, because I, I know that I am in a position to act as an advocate um, and a mentor in ways that, frankly, you know, my white colleagues don't have to think about. And, and that is a strain on my career and my emotional health and my mental health that I hadn't accounted for. You know, I'm used to doing it on my own, you know, or with you, Pedro, but we're advocating more for ourselves as opposed to for others um and and advocating for others is uh, an entirely new situation as far as like mental and emotional health goes so it, it's been a struggle and and there is a sense of like <laughs> i have been you know released from my chains my shackles and um and getting tenure and um can be even more vocal. And because I have been consistent about the things that I've been saying, even when I was untenured, now it's become something that they not only accept from me, but, you know, in a lot of cases come to me for my opinion um, to sort of help move policies along. And that's not necessarily a place I thought I would be when we were 18 and 19 years old. (laughs) Obviously, my experience is so vastly different. And I'm just so appreciative of both of you for sharing so much because now is a time for many people, myself included, to really lean in and actively seek out learning and perspective from other people 
so that we can better understand the challenge that we're facing and what you know we can do to help balance the scales a little bit and and I do think that that work needs to be done and I do think that it's my responsibility to do so you know hopefully in our lifetime I mean it's so silly to say that but hopefully in our lifetime we'll be able to see real um, growth and change so that, you know, it's not such a divide and, and, you know, and so that such pressure isn't placed on people of color or immigrants or any, you know, marginalized group to choose one or the other in that way. I, I make the commitment to do the work. Thank you so much, Jasmine, um, for joining us today. You can follow Jasmine on Twitter at Dr. Harris J, Dr. Harris J, and we'll we'll post that in the comments so you can find her. We absolutely will, Jazz. I can't wait till our next technologically challenged uh, group <laughs> chat. <laughs> Oh, man, we got to get better at that. We will. We will. (laughs) Yeah. Steph, that was a pretty dense conversation with Jasmine. Um, And, you know, I think it's it's only fair that we explain to middleists out there why we wanted to kind of get back into the meat of things with that particular conversation. And that has to do with the fact that over the past several months, while we've been dealing with the health crisis of the pandemic and COVID-19, we've simultaneously been dealing with the issues of inequities that both COVID and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement have brought to the forefront. And Jasmine, uh, amongst a couple of others that we talked about, um, were middleists that we wanted to home in on because um, for years they've been putting in extra work, right, from a diversity and inclusion perspective, just by consequence of who they are and, of course, of who I am and, to an extent, who you are as a female practitioner. Um, And so we thought it was both a relevant, timely conversation and a way for us to transition from this shared experience that we've been going through, but to broaden the conversation to be inclusive of all of the issues that are really um, salient right now. And so, you know, I wanted to both help explain that and then invite you to to share kind of reflection, um, if you will, of both the conversation we had and kind of moving forward. Yeah, I thank you for for bringing everyone up to speed on that. It's been such an interesting time, and I think it's the perfect moment for everyone to embrace having um, difficult or awkward or uncomfortable conversations, particularly uh, my fellow white people, because, and and I've shared this with you a little bit, that, you know, I don't want to step in it. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth or say the wrong thing, but the problem with that is it takes practice. While I may want to avoid having hard conversations, really, 
you have to start somewhere. I have been reading a lot recently about, you know, tips on how to do this and tips to how to, to be a better ally. And, um, I have to start somewhere. I've actually used this phrase too much recently, which is how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So in, in terms of this, this, um, that's, that's my biggest advice to anybody who wants to be a better ally. You have to be willing to start. You have to be willing to actively um, put yourself in the space, in the conversation. Now is the moment where I realize how much I need to learn and, and you know, and how I, how I can be so much better. So at being an ally and an advocate and um, I saw something that we don't just need allies, we need co-conspirators. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I want to be a co-conspirator in um, the fight for equality. So this conversation means a lot to me. You and Jasmine sharing so much perspective. Um, it, it's it's very giving of, of both of you. And I think, um, I'm hoping our listeners take away a lot from it. Absolutely. And thank you for being an awesome collaborator and listener and participant. And really, we hope everyone continues to enjoy the expert advice and coaching and stories that come through our podcast, The Middleist, and that this new um, attention to something that's been, you know, under the surface and we've come to through kind of less uh, direct and visible um, ways in the past with guests is also found to be as equally um, entertaining and helpful as we've heard from all of you. So please join us back on our journey. We'll be back on the next episode um, and look forward to seeing you online and uh, on anywhere you pod. For behind the scenes takes and images, follow The Middleist on Twitter and Instagram or visit themiddleist.com.